the scriptures. And if you have a Bible, please would you turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And uh, when you found it, I'd just like to uh, show you where Colossae is, because the, the books of the Bible, the New Testament books, most of them are letters. And uh, this was a letter to a church in Colossae, which is in today Turkey. And uh, it was uh, a part of, it was one city of three that were in a group together in a place called the Lysus Valley. I think the name Lysus means wolf, and I think it was probably a place where there was a lot of wildlife back in the day, uh, but certainly there were wolves of a different sort in, in Colossae, as we're going to see. Uh, but it was uh, quite a sizable city, and if you go there today, you can still see the ruins of the place where the church was and where Paul uh, wrote his letter to and did the missionary work there. So I think that helps to know where we're talking about uh, when we see these names in our Bible. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Bible says, He, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I read uh, about a, a, a man by the name of R.U. Darby. And he was a, a man in America in the 1800s. And he had got in on the gold rush and he had uh, decided to head out west and mine for gold and he found some gold it looked promising and so he went back to his home and raised some money for deeper mining equipment and persuaded his nephew to join him in the venture and they went out and they found an initial uh, supply of gold which was encouraging because they had a lot of money to pay back for all this equipment they'd bought and they kept digging Unfortunately, the deposit seemed to dry up, and as they dug down and down and down and down, it, there was no more gold. And heartbroken in the end, the two men eventually gave up and sold their equipment and headed off back home to go and take their, uh, the money they did raise back to their creditors and to go and earn more to pay their creditors off. But the man who bought the mine off them and bought the mining equipment off them, he decided that it was worth just giving it a little bit more of a go. And he went down another three feet and he found one of the biggest gold deposits in the whole 
of America. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Poor, poor guys, Darby, afterwards, you know, he was very gracious about it. And he said, I'll, I'll never give up again uh, after learning from that. But uh, you know what? Sometimes people can be like that, can't they? They can stop soon, too soon. They can, they can stop short of the real gold. And that was one of the things that was happening in Colossae in the church because there were some false teachers who'd come into the church there and they were saying, yes, Jesus is really important. Jesus is really wonderful, but he's not enough. He's not enough. What you really need to do is you need to add to the Lord Jesus other things like philosophy. And you need to add to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, the worship of angels. We need to get the power and the, and the help of angels in our lives. And uh, you need to mix into that Judaism from the Old Testament as well. And there were people in, in the church in Colossae who were trying to add on to Jesus because they didn't feel Jesus was enough. Well, in response to that, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. And they said, listen, Jesus is more than enough, more than enough. He is absolutely sufficient for all our needs. And it's due to his greatness. And in his pass- this passage of scripture here, Paul outlines the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a wonderful way to help the Colossian Christians realize that in Christ, they have everything they need and they are sufficient to have Jesus alone for their salvation and their Christian walk. And this passage of scripture is recognized by scholars to actually be an early Christian hymn. Now, it's hard to to see that way it's laid out in our Bibles, but we can detect in this a pattern of repeated verses. And there's two verses, and you can see uh, how the, the symmetry of language is used again in the second half of the passage, uh, saying he is and the firstborn, that, he, that for by him or for in him, and in the last place, in him all things or through him all things in each of the different verses. And so this was almost certainly a, a, a creedal hymn that the church used to sing uh, in the early days. And uh, whether it was written by Paul originally, or Paul incorporated it, we're, we're not sure, but it was certainly inspired because Paul put it in the scriptures to show these Colossian Christians that Jesus is more than enough. And it's a wonderful passage of scripture that highlights the glory of our Savior. And he highlights the glory of Christ in three areas, in, the ch- in creation, in the church, and in the cross. And I want us to have a look at this this morning because uh, I don't want us to make the same mistake. I don't want us to stop short in who we think Jesus is and how important or how sufficient he is uh, for our Christian life. I want us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be able to rest our faith confidently in him this morning. So let's have a look at this passage under these three headings, how it's broken up. First of all, let's see the glory of Christ in creation in verse 15 through to 17. And uh, here the Apostle Paul starts off and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And I'm going to just go through these clauses here, just explain them one by one. He is the image of the invisible God. 
Now, this is something of a paradox, isn't it? Uh, Because an invisible thing is something you can't see. And God is invisible. That's one of the things we're told in scripture. That's why you should never worship an idol, because an idol is an attempt to make a visible image of God. And God said, don't do it in the Ten Commandments. And uh, he is not a visible God that you can see. And false idols are to be rejected. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he was the manifestation of God in a human person so that he was visibly God on earth. The Greek word is the word icon, not ikin, but icon. And an icon in the Roman Catholic Church is something you look at and worship. Well, they've, they've abused that word. It's originally not about Roman Catholic things. It's about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one we could see and turn to and follow. You know, people always say, don't they, oh, if there's a God there, why doesn't he come and show us? Well, he did. (laughs) He did. That's exactly the point. Exactly what he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. He made himself visible so we could see him. And that's taught in many other scriptures as well, such as in Hebrews chapter 1, which tells us he is the express image of his person. But it goes on in verse 17, it says he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does that phrase firstborn mean? If you ever meet a Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you the firstborn means he's the first to be born. And because he was the firstborn, therefore we know Jesus is just a created being. He's not God, like the Christians say. Uh, He is uh, just a created being. He's the firstborn over all creation. And and at first that sounds logical, doesn't it? You know, first to be born, it, it seems to make sense. Uh, But actually, that's not what the word firstborn meant in its context and what it means in, in, in the Bible. Firstborn doesn't mean always the first to be born. It can mean that. Jesus was called the firstborn of Mary in Luke chapter 2. But it means it's a position of leadership and headship. There's another Bible verse that will help us understand this in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 26, verse 10. It tells us the family tree of a man called Hoash, and it says, Hoash the Merorite had sons, Shimri the first, and in brackets it says, although he was not the firstborn, his father appointed him the first. Now, can you see there, the term firstborn there is used as a position, He wasn't the firstborn technically, but he became the firstborn and he became the son who was the leading son who would be the heir. Uh, We also see it in Psalm 89 verse 27 of King David where God says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now David wasn't the firstborn, he was the eighth son of Jesse, the youngest boy. But God made him the firstborn over all the kings. So we see this title here, firstborn, is a position. And Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the one who has the highest place and authority over everything that has been created. He's not only God's visible image, but he is also the firstborn who's in charge of it all. And verse 16 goes on and tells us why. It says, for by him all things were created. Now that's a remarkable verse, isn't it? All things were created by the Lord Jesus. You know, when you read the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
I, de- I guess most of us aren't naturally thinking that's talking about Jesus. But according to Paul in the book of Colossians, it is. It was the Lord Jesus who created everything. And by the way, created, I want you to draw your attention to, is in the past tense. Uh, I just make that point because there are people around today who say that creation is still happening. There are certain Christian groups that say creation is still happening. God is still creating things. But in the Bible, it's always spoken of in the past tense. God finished the work of creation, you remember, uh, in the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1. And it goes on and says in verse 16, the things that Jesus made. And it says, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, this describes the, the, the vastness of the creation which the Lord Jesus made. And it tells us what he made. He made things in heaven and on earth. So the Lord Jesus didn't just make the things you and I can see when we walk out this building, the beautiful trees opposite and uh, the beautiful scenery around the hills of Bath. He made the things we can't see as well. Things in heaven. And that doesn't just mean up in space, because we all know there's an area of space that gets beyond human vision where even our, our most powerful telescope cannot see that far. But it goes into the very realm where God is. And heaven itself is a created place. It's a real place, just as real as this is. Uh, I like to say it's a place on God's map. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you'll be able to go there. But uh, he made the things in heaven as well as the things on earth, visible and invisible. And the visible and the invisible is the distinction between the spiritual world and our world. Martin Luther said an angel is a spiritual creature created by God without a body for the services of Christendom and of the church. And he's absolutely right. Uh, That's what angels are. They're spiritual creatures, invisible. We can't see them. God's invisible army. But there are angels all around us. There's probably angels in this room for all I know. Because where God's people are gathered, his his guarding angels will be here. And and where the children are, uh, according to scripture. Well, Jesus made those invisible angels in all their ranks and authorities. And that's what's being described here by the terms thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. See, a lot of people just think that God bulk manufactured angels like on a conveyor belt and they're all the same. That's not true. In the angelic realm, it's like in the human realm, there are different layers of authority. You have kings and you have, well, not kings in the angel world, but you have uh, rulers in the angel world and you have ordinary angels and different archangels and so on. And this was very important for the Colossians to know because in their mindset, in their cultural mindset, angels were, were a very big thing. And we read in chapter two that some people had even started worshiping the angels. But Paul's point here is, if Jesus made the angels, then he's greater than the angels. And if you've got Jesus, you've got everything you need. You don't need, <laughs> don't need the angels, because you've got the creator. He is far greater. And by the way, that's why his name is powerful over all angelical beings. Because they were created by him and for him, as it says there. 
You know, the devil and his angels, his fallen angels, were all originally made before they rebelled against God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why they still submit to the name of the Lord Jesus. Just this week, I read a a, a thrilling testimony of a a missionary in the Congo by the name of W.F. Burton. And uh, he told the story about how when he was traveling through the Congo, he went to a particular village and he drove his car through this village and he saw a man strapped to a chair. And he had a, a pole at his back and he had a, a brace around his, his head and neck and he, he looked like he was a very dangerous man. And he got out of his car and he spoke to the village people and he said, why, why is that man all strapped up like that? And they said, don't go near him. He's very dangerous, very dangerous. Many evil spirits live in this man. And he said, the Lord Jesus is greater than all those evil spirits. And he just went over and he prayed for that man in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out and leave this man alone. He got in his car and drove on, and a few days later he made a return journey. And as he made the return journey, he was driving along. He could see a man walking in the road, singing and skipping, and he had a little musical instrument with him. He thought, he looks a happy fellow. And as he got alongside him, do you know, it was the same man he had prayed for. He'd been delivered by the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Isn't that a wonderful testimony? And it's exactly what Paul says. This is proof. Uh, Jesus is Lord over all creation, even the angelic realm. And in verse 17, it says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This verse was especially important in AD 325 at the Council of Nicaea, where there was a battle raging with a, a group of people called the Arians, who followed a man called Arius, who said Jesus is just a created being. He's just a little less than God, but he, he's, not, he's not God. And this verse was the verse that Athanasius won the battle with because he said he is before all things. Not was before all things or has become before all things. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the creator. If he's before all things, he is the creator. And therefore he is God. And I love that second part of the verse in verse 17. And in him all things hold together. John Wesley says he is the cement as well as the support of creation. (laughs) I love that. Do you know scientists today, they study the atom and they find the atom fascinating. What is the nuclear power that holds an atom together? Well, one scientist, he was reading his Bible and when he, took his, when he came to this verse, he just had to stop, take off his glasses, and said, I found the answer. It's Christ. He holds all things together. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus is the one who can hold us together too, even when we're going through difficult times. Verse 18 uh, brings us on to the next section in just a minute. So I hope you see here the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in creation. He is not just a man. You know, in that, that film, The Da Vinci Code, a blasphemous film made on a blasphemous book, Robert Langdon, who's played by Thomas Hanks, says, Human or divine, divine or human, what difference does it make? Maybe human is divine. And that's the attitude the world has towards this whole issue, doesn't it? What difference does it make? Makes all the difference in the world. 
because only the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is God, can be sufficient and able to save us. One lady who bore very clear testimony to that was a lady by the name of Dolly Medigani, uh, which is like a, an Italian-American name. And she and her husband, uh, after the war, they became Jehovah's Witnesses. But as she went on with the Watchtower and studied the Bible, she became more and more dissatisfied with their changing views and doctrines and how they uh, would use the Bible to interpret uh, uh, whatever they thought was right and uh, in, a, in a wrong way. And she found many verses were taken out of context. And so she moved away from the movement and she decided that she would start studying the Bible on her own. And this is what the Watchtower will always tell you. You can't study the Bible on your own. You've got to use our materials to study the Bible. Well, this is what she did. She said, after I looked through the publications and found other similar problems, I set them aside and began studying the Bible without literature aids of any kind. I read chapter by chapter, looking up cross-references wherever necessary. The Holy Spirit revealed many things to me, and I was amazed to find that orthodox Christianity was really true. I discovered that the Bible taught such doctrines as the Trinity, the deity or godness of Christ, the personality of the Holy Spirit, the immortality of the soul and the visible return of Christ, all the doctrines of the Watchtower Society that they had brainwashed us into rejecting. But the most wonderful discovery that my husband and I made came in 1964 when we met our Lord and Saviour in the pages of the Bible. Yes, Christ is our God. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Christ of the New. I know now that the witnesses' difficulty is that they are blinded to the truth by the Bible's, of the Bible's teaching concerning Christ. Through our honest study of the Bible, we also found that salvation is not in an organization, denomination, a creed, or in anything else. Salvation is in a person, and that person is Christ. Praise God. And that's why this really matters. And um, Praise God. We can say Jesus is Lord, and he is glorious uh, in creation. He is also, we see his glory in the church in verses 18 and 19. Moving on, it says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, the church is used as, uh, uh, the church is the name for the group of people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Greek word ecclesia means the called out ones. Those who have been called out from the world by God to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible uses many descriptions uh, to give us an understanding of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the church. Sometimes the church is called the bride of Christ and the, Jesus is the bridegroom. Sometimes we're like an army and he's our captain, the captain of salvation. But one of the most commonly used ones is the picture of a body used in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians and here in Colossians especially. And the connect relationship between Jesus and the church is in this, that he is the head of the body. Now, 
we know what the head of the body does, doesn't it? The head is the place that gives the signals for the commands of everything else in your body. And if your head isn't working, then your body can't work either. So your head is vital and Christ is given the highest place. He is the head of the church. Now, I love to say that today because we live in a world where a lot of people get confused about who is the head of the church. A lot of people think the head of the church is Justin Welby. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's not. He's not. The head of the church is not King Charles either. Uh, Even though uh, kings in our country have tried to claim to be the head of the church. And the head of the church is not the Pope, for sure. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the head of the church. And if we want to come into the church, if we want to become a real Christian, then we need to be in touch with the head. We need to ask the Lord Jesus to be our saviour. And the reason he is the head of the church, as we're told here in verse 18, is because he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, that phrase there, he is the beginning, uh, he is the beginning of the church. He was the one who started the church. But he's also the beginning of the church's new future when he rose from the dead. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 calls him the beginning of the new creation through his resurrection. And he is called again the firstborn, the firstborn from among the dead. In this sense, it means that Jesus was the first one to be raised, never to die again. Now, there were other people who were raised before Jesus in the Old Testament. You remember Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. But they all died again. And even the people Jesus raised, like Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, they all died again. But the Lord Jesus was the only one, the first one, to rise from the dead, never to die again. And so he is called the firstborn from among the dead. But just as he's called the first fruits in Corinthians because others will be like him, then he is also the firstborn who will lead others to salvation and a resurrection hope as well. And that's what we have as Christians. And we're so thankful for that. And it says in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. You see, in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is everything of God, all of God's fullness. Jesus isn't 90% God or even 99% God. Everything of God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit are. He is co-equal and co-eternal with them. All the fullness of God dwells in him. And that's why he could conquer death. I don't know if you've ever been to the swimming bath where they have these floats that help children swim with, the polystyrene ones, or uh, with a beach ball or something. And you take that beach ball, that polystyrene uh, uh, float, and you try taking it down to the bottom of the, of the swimming pool. What happens when you let go? It has to go straight back up. And I used to love it with the plastic floats because they would shoot out the water and come up even out of the water uh, and uh, make a splash. Well, you know what? That's like Christ. Death could not hold him. When he died on the cross, death could not hold him because you're talking about the one who has the fullness of God in him, who has life itself 
And so he was able to rise from the dead and conquer death and give us the hope of eternal life. That's why we need to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize his glory in the church because of this. You know, that missionary I told you about, one day when he came back from uh, furlough, on furlough from, from the Congo, he was staying with a Methodist bishop. Let me read to you what he says. I one day sat in the home of a Methodist bishop. I was enjoying my Bible as he, and he was reading a church newspaper. Uh, that's not a normal newspaper, it's a sort of Christian publication, so-called. When he put it down, I picked it up to see what had so absorbed him. And I was horrified to read its quote-unquote higher critical character. In other words, they turn on all the miracles. Well, you can explain this. And that isn't really true. And the Bible doesn't really, well, nobody knows if Jesus really said these things. That's what higher criticism is. I was horrified to read its higher critical character. It denied all the fundamental glorious verities of our faith. I said, Bishop, if I fed my soul on that poisonous stuff, I should become an infidel. It is nothing but systematic unbelief. He said, isn't it well to hear both sides of an argument? I replied, this is not an argument. It's a diabolical attack on my father and his word. It is satanic unbelief masquerading as Christianity. Get back to God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'd be ashamed to have that magazine in my home. Well said. But you know what? So many people today doubt these fundamental truths about the Lord Jesus Christ because they fed on stuff like that. If that's you, you need to turn away from it and come back to the Bible and see what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorious. He is the Lord over all creation and the head of the church. Finally, we see here his glory in the cross in verse 20. And the final part of this hymn says this, and through him, through the Lord Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The greatest aspect of Christ's glory is saved for the last, I believe, and it is the climax of the cross, where we see the Lord Jesus Christ is the way God reconciles the fallen world to himself. You know, ever since the Garden of Eden uh, and Adam eating that fruit, this world has gone away from God. And you look at the state of the world today, it's going away from God 100 miles an hour, isn't it, in the opposite direction. Well, the good news is when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died to reconcile the world to God and make it possible for people to come back to God through him. And he himself uh, paid for our sins in his blood on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't dying there to show us how a good man dies. He wasn't dying there to be a martyr. He was dying there to be a substitute. And his blood was the payment for you to get out of hell and go to heaven. And for me to get out of hell and go to heaven. And so Peter, Paul says here that he made peace through the blood of his cross. That's how it's worded in other translations. Through his blood on the cross. And therefore God is able to reconcile all things to himself. Things in earth and things in heaven. You say what things in heaven? The church in heaven. 
The Christians who are in heaven, they've been reconciled by Jesus' death on the cross, just as people on earth today can be reconciled as well. And I wonder whether or not you've been reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Our glorious saviour did a glorious work of salvation when he went and died there for our sins. And he opened the way for you and me to be saved and to be able to go to heaven and be right with God, our creator. Will you come to him? Will you trust in him? Many people are afraid to do so or too proud to do so. I read uh, in a little magazine some years ago about uh, a man who bought a Rolls Royce. And when he went for a test drive in this Rolls Royce, this man who was a famous composer, he, 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 he had a chauffeur driving him along and, and uh, he said, this is a beautiful car. I think I'm probably going to buy one of these. He said, uh, could we pull over on the side? I'd just love to see the engine. And the man who was the chauffeur from Rolls Royce said, oh, no, sir, I'm sorry, we can't do that. He said, well, why not? And he said, I want to see the engine. He said, well, sir, we can show you when we get back inside the garage. He said, we never open the bonnet of a Rolls Royce by the side of the road in case somebody thinks there's something wrong with our car. And you know what? I know hundreds of people who come to church with the same philosophy. I'll never open up my heart and admit there's something wrong with me. But dear friends, by that means, you can never be saved. You need to say, I am the sinner. Jesus came and died for, and I need to be saved. And you need to call on him and ask him to be your saviour. Knowing these things is not enough. Billy Sunday, the famous preacher, said, a man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. Think of that. You can slip into hell with your hand on the doorknob of heaven. That close, but still not in. If you haven't opened Christ and come to Christ, then you need to today. He has made it possible and he is the all-sufficient saviour who will be everything you need for getting to heaven and for your Christian life as well. May God bless these things to us today.